Well, thank you, Pastor Rice, uh, for the warm invitation to come to Medina Bible Church. This is our first church on our furlough, our 14-month scheduled furlough uh, throughout the states. Um, you might be wondering, didn't uh, Mark just say that he's from England? What's that accent that seems missing? Uh, I know it's disappointing. You'll have to get used to it and get over that quickly. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, studied at the Master's Seminary, so we've been a bit all over uh, the world. We've, As Marcus said, we've been missionaries in Rugby, England, um, in the UK for nearly 20 years, and in Rugby, England since 2005. Um, rugby, as someone pointed out, it, what they say about rugby is it's football for real men uh, because they don't wear girdles over there uh, like they do here in America. But... Um, Anyway, that's where the sport originated uh, in the town where we minister. It is a, a place where people, nations from all over the world, come to see where the sport started. Um, but uh, our, our church is not really on the south side. We're on the north side of, uh, of rugby. We planted a church about nine years ago. It has been the best nine years of our entire 20 years of UK ministry called Grace Bible Church Rugby. And we do hope to tell you a bit more of that, maybe during the fellowship time after uh, the service today and throughout the week for those of you who will be coming to the uh, the midweek services and the prayer meetings. My wife will share her testimony, and uh, it will be a delight to tell you about our church. Our, our greatest need in coming to you today is to, is to ask you to pray for us and to gather a group of like-minded people who love the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ who will pray for the extension of the gospel in Europe, dead Europe, spiritually dead Europe. And um, to that end, my, my family and I would like to invite you to take a missionary prayer card. Uh, there was a number of them printed, so please take one, put it on your fridge. Whenever you go to grab a snack or eat something, remember to pray for the, the McConnells. Um, or when you see the golden arches out there, I know it's McDonald's, but McConnell and McDonald's, <laughs> we come from the same clan, that's what I'm told. So grab one of these cards and pray for, pray for us in our church planting ministry as Mark said, I've mainly been a pastor for nearly 20 years overseas, and we're backing into becoming traditional church planting missionaries. Uh, one church has been planted, and two weeks ago we, we installed the new pastor, the British national pastor with whom I worked for 10 years, a uh, fellow elder of mine, as the new pastor of the church. And in 14 months, if the Lord allows, we hope to return to the same church and serve in a different capacity as the elder over church planting ministries and over our Grace Bible Academy, which is our church-based training center. Um, we are in the process of planting another church. We've trained a man named Claudio Farina, uh, and he is a Portuguese uh, young man, just 30 years of age. He's married, has three children, and he's, in the, he's right in the middle of raising his support to, to be our first church planting missionary out of our own church plant uh, to the island, the Portuguese island of Madeira which is, uh, which is uh, west of uh, Morocco. So if you picture Morocco on the African continent and you go left, you'll find the island of Madeira. And, um, and there's these brochures if you want to pray uh, for, uh, for him, Claudio, as he seeks to bring the gospel back to his people. He's Madeiran, and Madeira is primarily an all-Catholic island. And so they have a lot of tradition, and they don't have the gospel there. And our desire is to see the gospel spread uh, to that island which gets a million tourists every year during non-COVID times. Well, uh, before I ask the Lord, uh, before I pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word, 
I don't want to um, I don't want you to miss my introduction for my wife Kathy. We've been married for 22 years, and uh, she's the the best part of the McConnells. And we have five children. Uh, two are not with us. Uh, our eldest son Joshua is uh, in a, entering his senior year at the Masters University in Southern California. Our second son Josiah is 18, and he's in St. Louis with his grandfather. He's headed to Masters University to study business. Josh is studying for the ministry. And our third son, Jonathan, is here. And then we have Joy and Julia. And these are the blessings that the Lord has given us. And uh, this is our first time to travel on an extended furlough. So we appreciate your prayers uh, as we learn to do that. Well, my, my responsibility this morning is to open God's word to you and hopefully... Uh, bring something from God's word that the spirit of God will use in your own life to stir you up. Now, I know that in any church we go to, there'll be people uh, of various, with various needs. Some of you know the Lord Jesus Christ and your, your needs will be of one sort. And some of you are uh, perhaps you're wondering about God or you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And today for you, I pray that today will be the day of your salvation, that the Lord will use his word to open uh, your eyes to your need of him. And for those of you who do know the Lord, that you'll be encouraged, built up in your most holy faith, and be reminded of what your responsibilities are. Let's join together in prayer before we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you and praise you for Medina Bible Church. We thank you for raising up this uh, lighthouse here in this part of the country. We thank you, Lord, for its stand on the word of God. We want to thank you, Lord, for its focus and, and its reliance on the scriptures, its exaltation of you, Lord Jesus, who are the head of the church. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the men of God that you're raising up and the leadership of this church that you've raised up uh, to, to preach the word here. Lord, we know that as your servants serving overseas, that uh, hardly can the church go forward uh, overseas with a, with a weak church here in the States. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen this church. Thank you for its gospel emphasis, its, uh, its focus on you, Lord Jesus, and on your word. We pray that you would grant them fruit for their labors, uh, that, uh, that your spirit, Lord, would regenerate and open the hearts of many so that they would be found giving you all the praise and all the glory. Would you now speak as your word is opened? and accomplish the purposes for which you've ordained this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 8, please? Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 8, whoops. In the United Kingdom, sometime in September or October, Many British churches will celebrate what they call a harvest uh, thanksgiving service, a service uh, of thanksgiving to God for providing the harvest of crops through the summer and the early autumn. Harvest thanksgiving in Britain is the UK origin behind our American thanksgiving we celebrate on the third Thursday of November. Do you still celebrate that here in America? It's been a while since we've been in America. Uh, for that for that celebration. We're told that when the pilgrims immigrated to America from England, they celebrated their first Thanksgiving in the New World in October 1621. And if you've read about the first pilgrim Thanksgiving, then you would then you know it could have gone very badly uh, with the how difficult that first winter was. 
by the mercies of God and God's providence, uh, his providential help through some local Native American Indians, those early pilgrims from Britain, now in America, experience a much-needed deliverance that resulted in what we now call Thanksgiving. And uh, it wouldn't be wrong to describe that first pilgrim celebration as the deliverance that resulted in Thanksgiving. Deliverance, or as it's frequently called in the Bible, salvation, dominates the pages of Scripture. Aside from the glory of God, that grand theme of Scripture, I cannot think of a more dominant subject or theme in the Bible than that of deliverance. Uh, from Genesis 3.15 to Genesis, uh, Revelation 22.17, deliverance is one of the greatest subjects found in, in all of the pages of Scripture. And our text this morning in Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through 39, has the same subject, deliverance, and has the same theme, deliverance, that results in thanksgiving and praise. Really, I want to talk to you about the deliverance that Jesus brings that ought to result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Not just from a historical perspective, as we'll see it in the pages of Scripture, but for you to think about deliverance today that should lead to the exaltation of Jesus Christ in your own personal life as a Christian and in your life together as a church. So by now you're in Luke chapter 8, and I'll begin reading in verse 26 down to verse 39. This is the word of God. And then they sailed to the country of the Garrisons, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the de demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported it to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the garrisons and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he sent, so he went away and proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Well, in this passage of scripture, 
uh, we see a tremendous illustration, a historically accurate account of the deliverance that Jesus brings that results in the exaltation of Christ. This is what we see uh, in this in this narrative. And um, before we come to uh, verse 26 in this chapter, Jesus and his disciples uh, had they got into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they set sail. And you know the story because it's important that you understand the context of where we're at in verse 26 to 39. Before they even get to the garrisons, Jesus falls asleep in the boat and they're on the Sea of Galilee and a windstorm comes down. If you look down at verse 23, comes down over the lake and the boat started taking on water to such a degree that the disciples woke Jesus and said, Master, Master, we're perishing. Jesus, disturbed from his sleep, displayed his divinity to his disciples in a most disturbing way. There's a lot of D's there in that sentence. But at least disturbing to his disciples. According to Mark 4.39, Jesus gets up, looks up, and speaks up, saying to the winds and the sea, Peace, be still. So that the once storm-tossed Sea of Galilee looked like Lake Placid. Matthew 8.27 tells us that the disciples marveled. Mark 4.41, the disciples, it tells us that the disciples were filled with megaphobia, great fear. And Luke 8.25 in our gospel um, narrative of that event includes fear, a mixture of fear and marveling as the disciples' response to Jesus' demonstration of power over the forces of nature. And that's what takes place in this previous context leading up to this account of uh, Jesus meeting the demon-possessed man. Jesus has just demonstrated his power as the son of the living God over the forces of nature. And while Luke 8, to 25, Jesus shows his power over the forces of nature, in our text, Luke 8, 26 through 39, Jesus shows his power over the forces of darkness. In these verses, verses 26 through 39, Jesus is going to demonstrate his power over the forces of darkness by delivering a man who was, listen, completely and totally in the grip and power of demonic darkness. And and Jesus' power over the spiritual forces is going to be put on display in this text. The deliverance Jesus is going to provide in verses 26 through 39 is found uh, in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 8 and Mark 5, you can find the, uh, the, the same account from the other writers of Scripture's perspective. Mark's account is the longest. Uh, Luke's has 14 verses. And Matthew's, which was probably the first written, uh, has seven verses. Matthew's gospel tells us that there were two possessed men. Both Mark and Luke's gospel focus on Jesus' dealing with the one man that is presumed by Bible scholars to be the leader of the two. And in our account, we see one of those men under the focus of of Luke. This deliverance recorded here in verses 26 through uh, 39 occurs in the early days of Jesus' earthly ministry when he lived up north in Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Nazareth, uh, he left Nazareth to live in Capernaum, uh, Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 13. And, and Mark, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, we see that Capernaum is going to be Jesus' headquarters, at least for the first part of his ministry. So this is where this incredible um, uh, miracle is going to take place, where he delivers uh, this, uh, this man who's possessed. Luke's account of this man's deliverance can be divided up into two parts, from which I want to draw two simple lessons about deliverance today. 
two simple lessons from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, that should result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ this morning. And I have a human goal. I know Isaiah uh, 55, 11 says that the Lord will accomplish all the purposes that he has for the sending forth of his word. So God might have uh, uh, an entirely different purpose for you hearing this uh, message today. But I have two purposes uh, in my own mind. For those of you who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, that today will be the day in which you experience the deliverance that only he can provide. That's my heartfelt goal for you. And for those of you who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, like the man who was delivered uh, and went and proclaimed to his family and to the whole city all that Christ had done for him, that that would mark your life, that as a delivered person, you would want to be with Jesus and you would end up telling people what Christ has done for you. So whether you've yet to be saved or, you're, uh, or you, you have known the Lord's deliverance, today is a day there's something here, I think, in God's word for you. So let me give you my two heads, my two, that's what they call them in uh, Britain, for two main points of your outline. Let me give you the two heads of our outline today. These two simple lessons about deliverance, uh, here they are. First, there is a need for deliverance. In verses 27 through 33, we're going to look at the need for deliverance. There is a need for Jesus' deliverance. And the second simple lesson about deliverance from this passage that I want to raise to you is that there is a response to Jesus' deliverance. There is a need for Jesus' deliverance, verses 27 through 33, and there is a response to Jesus' deliverance in verses 34 through 39. So let's take a look at the need for Jesus' deliverance in 27 through 33. In this passage, there are really two details that prove this man needs deliverance. The first is the description of the man found in verse 27. He's a man from the city. Secondly, he, he's a man who had demons. Matthew says that he was a demon-possessed man. Mark says he was a man of, unclean, of an unclean spirit. And Luke says a certain man who was possessed with demons. These demons are corrupt spiritual beings. Uh, they're, they're called by various names and descriptions throughout the, uh, throughout the scriptures. They're called in places familiar spirits, unclean spirits, principalities, the wicked rulers of the, this present darkness or wicked rulers and authorities in Colossians 2.15. These demons, uh, we have to understand because there is a kind of way of looking at this world which denies that there is an immaterial world or that there is a spiritual world altogether. That the world is just made up of molecules in motion and they would even deny that man had a soul or a spirit, an immaterial part of him. And these demons are spiritual beings. Who are these demons that Jesus is facing? Well, according to scripture, demons are fallen angels who followed Satan in the rebellion against God you can read about that in Revelations 12.4. They were cursed by God and cast out of heaven. And many of these wicked, rebellious, unclean spirits, God had committed to be reserved in chains of darkness until the final judgment. And you were, we were reading that uh, in, in Revelation 17 in our scripture reading today, uh, how Jesus is, uh, Jesus is going to triumph over all the rebellion. 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment, Jude 6 says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, the judgment of the great day. 
Many of these demons were permitted to move on the earth, as we clearly see throughout the New Testament. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is confronted frequently with demon-possessed people, or the, or the, uh, the Gospels will talk about how Jesus healed demon-possessed people. Uh, though God provides redemption for us in sinful humanity, uh, of which we are part, God has sealed the sinful state of these rebel spirit beings forever. In other words, when mankind fell into sin, God, in Genesis chapter 3, laid a plan for our recovery. For our, for, uh, he laid a plan and a way for us to be forgiven for our sins and brought into a right relationship with God as lost humanity. But he did not do that for the angels who fell in sin. In other words, he did something different for us in, in mankind than he did with those higher spiritual beings, the angels who did not keep their first estate. In other words, redemption is for us in humanity, and even the elect angels are, are longing to see what this thing about redemption really is, having never experienced a fall in nature. But those of you who have, those of you who have been saved, you know what it's like to be caught in the grip of darkness and under the domain of Satan. And since you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, know what it's like to be delivered from the bonds of that darkness. It says thirdly about this man's description that he lived among the tombs for a long time. It says in Matthew, he was coming out of the tombs. In Mark, he was dwelling among the tombs. Only Luke's gospel tells us that he wore no clothes for a long time. And he had not lived in a house for a long time. We would say that in Britain, uh, that he was living rough. He was living on the street, but he was living in the graveyard. He was living... Uh, in, the, in the tombs and near the tombs where all the dead were brought. This man's description alone proves that he needs deliverance. Just looking at him, you know, like I would know, something's not right with this man. This man needs help. And he certainly did need help. However, there's a second detail that proves this man needs deliverance uh, found in verses 28 through 32. And that second detail is the man's recognition of Jesus proves that he needs deliverance. Without introduction, the man knew Jesus' name in verse 27. Without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity in verse 28. And without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power in verse 28. I beg you, do not torment me. This man, by his recognition of Jesus, and all of these details about his recognition of Jesus, prove that this man uh, something was happening in this man that was not just an ordinary run-of-the-mill uh, greeting between two men. Without in, an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. The meeting was too tense, by the way, for an introduction. Jesus didn't say, hi, I'm Jesus, and the man say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I just hang out here in the tombs. No, in, in fact, Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 8, 28 says that the demoniacs were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Uh, the people who would normally live in, in the area of the garrisons, uh, they, they weren't allowed to travel there because these men would come out and probably attack them. Uh, Acts uh, 19, in uh, uh, verses 14 through 16, you have that humorous account of uh, the seven sons of Sceva, and they were trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name, uh, and although they weren't followers of Jesus, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you guys? Who are you guys? And the men who were not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the man in whom was an evil spirit, leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of their house naked and wounded. Kind of like the demoniac here uh, uh, among the tombs. 
Mark 5 says, constantly night and day, this demon-possessed man was crying out and gashing himself with stones. This was, a, this was an intense uh, meeting between, it was a sudden meeting. The, the meeting took to, uh, place too soon for an introduction. Luke 8.27 says, when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him, um, this man, this man met him immediately. There was no time for an introduction, but yet this man still recognized who Jesus is. Mark 5, 2 says, uses the word immediately as Jesus steps out of the boat. And when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus? There was no exchange, no introduction, but this man knew who he was. This man who was possessed by these uh, demons knew who he was. And you remember what the name Jesus means, don't you? It's the New Testament equivalent to Joshua, Yehoshua. And it means that Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. So this man, in need of great deliverance, was standing in the presence of Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves, and the demons that were uh, in, uh, in the man knew who this person was. No introductions were possible. No introductions were necessary. Without explanation, the man knew Jesus' identity, true identity, he said to Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. And it's at this point where I think it's so important for many of you who have been regular church attenders for, for years to understand that there is a kind of preaching of the gospel which will never save anybody unless you understand the true biblical gospel. There's a kind of preaching of the gospel which is incomplete. Uh, there is a kind of preaching of the gospel that gives us the data of the gospel, that is the information about who Christ is and who God is and what sin is. And, and many religions are taught that. I, I would say that of a Roman Catholic background, and I would sign on the dotted line that I heard these things, uh, at least in, in, in child form, the data of the gospel, that God is holy and that the Bible is true and the word of God. That's the data of the gospel. And then there's the assenting that the truth of the, the word of God. Many people say, yep, that's what the Bible says. I believe that that's, uh, that's true. Therefore, I must be a Christian. If that is the extent of your relationship with God, knowing facts about God and Jesus and agreeing, as important as that is, that those facts are true, then you are still in need of deliverance. Because the final part of your faith, that's fiducia, that's where you rest entirely and trust entirely in the work of Jesus Christ, depending on him and him alone for your salvation. Unless you have all three, you don't have genuine saving faith. You don't have a, a salvation. You've never been delivered by your sin. How many of you do you think, how many people do you think in America know a lot about Jesus and say that what, Jesus, what, what the Bible says about Jesus is true, but they are not placing their entire faith and resting entirely and completely in Jesus Christ. That may describe you. Uh, it, it described me for many years. I was taught in a good church that taught the Bible, uh, and I got to know who Jesus was through that Bible teaching. And I believed everything that I was taught from the Bible. But it was a long time before the Lord made it clear to me that I wasn't trusting and resting entirely in Jesus Christ before he saved me. And if that describes you, salvation is at hand for you. The Lord, this is no accident that we're here, that you're hearing this. Uh, it may be that you know about Christ and believe those things to be true, but you're still trusting in your good works to get you to heaven. You're still trusting in a various number of things uh, in addition to what Jesus and Jesus alone has done. And there's salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ. 
You must rest entirely in him. You see, a true understanding of who Jesus is does not save you. Uh, You may say, I believe in Jesus, as I've said. You may say, Jesus is the son of the most high God, like these demons did. They had an excellent Christology, Pastor Mark. They knew exactly who Jesus uh, is, and they knew his titles. Uh, they, they knew who he was. They knew what he was going to do in the future. They had a, a degree of understanding about prophecy and their coming future judgment that many of us don't have uh, knowledge of. About. They knew the facts about who Jesus was, but they weren't delivered. You see, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the one that's found in James 2.19. There's a kind of faith, as James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Belief in Jesus and knowing who Jesus is is not enough to say that you're delivered from the power of darkness. It's only enough to say that you could be on the same level as these demons. And you don't want to identify it with them. One preacher commenting on James 2.19 rightly said, If you think you're saved only because you believe correct things about Jesus, all that does is qualify you to be like the demons. Demons know Jesus. But saved human beings put their entire faith and trust in Christ alone. Without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. And without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power. He says, I beg you, do not torment me. And in the text, when you look at verse uh, 28 there, when he says this, when he says, I beg you, do not torment me, notice the, the singular. This is where studying the Bible is really fun for me. It might be a little bit boring for the congregation, but it's fun for me. uh, Because notice the singular. He saw Jesus, verse 28. Uh, In verse 28, what have you to do with me? Notice the singular. Verse 28, I beg you. Notice the singular. Do not torment me. Notice the singular. The unclean spirit. Notice the singular. It. Notice it had seized him. In verse 29, notice the singular. In verse 29, driven by the demon. Notice the singular. Seven times the singular is used, but Luke is about to show us that Jesus knows who and what he is facing in this demon-possessed man. He writes in the singular, but something is about to change. He already alludes to it in verse 27, demons, when he uses the plural demons. Note the switch to the plural in verse 31. They begged him. Notice verse 32. They begged him. Notice the plural in verse 33. The demons. Notice the plural in verse 35. The demons. All right, now, so you've got to be asking yourself, this guy traveled halfway around the world from rugby England to focus on the singular and the plural in our time of worship. What's the big deal about all this? Well, what is so important that we see the change from the singular to the plural? How does observing this important, often overlooked fact help us better understand this passage? Well, let me ask you a question. When Jesus asks the question in verse 30, what is your name? Do you think he was asking for his own benefit as the son of God who is omniscient and knows everything? Or do you think he was asking for another reason? He wasn't asking for his, I'll I'll answer the question, it's rhetorical. He wasn't asking for his own benefit. He knew who he was talking to. He was talking, as as the demon said, we are legion. Before Jesus asks the question in verse 30, we see from the outside, from Luke's account, Jesus facing this possessed man. Mono, e mono. 
One versus one. One man versus one man. And that's how the narrative is, is painted because that's what it looks on the external scene. That's what it looks like if you had just happened on the road that day to see one man facing one man. However, Jesus asks the question so that we as the readers might clearly see what Jesus is clearly seeing. And that is this. As we discovered, it's not one man versus one man. The demon-possessed man answers when he says, when Jesus asked him, what's your name? He says, legions, for many demons had entered him. Now, legions may not uh, mean a lot to you. This is an incredible. Do they call this an um, American legion? Is this an American legion building? Okay, so you have, you have a better understanding than most people I'm going to preach this message to about what it means. When you go into, uh, when you consider what a legion is in the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion was the Roman name given to a group of 6,000 soldiers. So when this demon said to Jesus, who are, when Jesus uh, said, who are you? And this demon, these demons said, we're legion. Uh, you think about the, this Roman uh, uh, guard in the time of Caesar Augustus, n- numbering 6,000. Jesus will later say in Matthew 26, uh, 53, do you, not, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of elect angels? Remember when he says that? Do you think that you're taking my life from me? Don't you know I can call for backup anytime? I'm laying my life down willingly because it's necessary for your salvation. In 2 Kings 19, verses 35, listen. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And there's legions of demons, these fallen angels, occupying this man. Here's the point. The point is that we must clearly understand that this is not one man against another man. Mark 5.4 describes the scene concerning the power of this demon-possessed man before Jesus arrives, that no one was strong enough to subdue him. The accurate scene is more uh, like Jesus versus 6,000 demons controlling one man. That's the real picture that we ought to see here if we're reading the scriptures accurately. Jesus versus 6,000 enemies in the spiritual realm in this one man. Yet understanding all of this, my dear friends, it was no fair fight. What does a smaller army do when it sees that they are vastly outnumbered, outmatched by their opponent? Well, they sue for peace. And that's what happened. This legion, this 6,000 number of demons, began begging Jesus, the son of the living God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the creator of all that is, they were outnumbered because they had, been, they had come into the presence of someone who was more powerful than all 6,000 of them. It was no fair fight. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. When no one else can help this man, when God comes on the scene, there's hope in this man's life. He, the demons began begging, de'omai. They began to beg and pray uh, to, and uh, to ask Jesus, begging Jesus This is the same word that uh, a man full of leprosy used when he was begging Jesus to heal him. They were uh, just like these men who begged Jesus to heal him. These demons were begging him not to throw them into the abyss. It was some sort of prayer, although they were fallen angels. They were begging him not to bring judgment upon them. Luke 8.31 says that they begged him. It means to make a strong request, to implore. This is what the demons were doing to Jesus. And notice what they said. Have you come? Basically, they don't want to be tormented before the appointed time of their judgment. They know what's coming for them. Uh, they, 
This world lies in, in, a, in a veil of tears, but it lies in the power of the evil one, according to 1 John chapter 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Obviously, that's underneath the banner of God's sovereignty. But we see evil and wickedness all around us, and thus the need for the power of Christ. And they said to the Lord, have you come to torment us? Uh, please don't torment us. Please uh, don't, uh, don't send us into the, into the abyss. The word torment here means to subject to severe distress, to bring about judicial punishment uh, for their rebellion against God. Uh, this uh, same word is used in Matthew 14, 24 uh, to refer to a boat being battered by the winds and the water. You can read more, to, more about this. Uh, they beg, do not command them to go into the abyss, the bottomless pit. The abyss in Revelation 9, 1 through 12 is the abode of evil beings. In Revelation 17, 8, it is the place from which the beast who bears the harlot arises. And it is the location of Satan's confinement for 1,000 years according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. The abyss is various, uh, various uses of the term in Jewish, pagan, and Christian literatures come from a common, the common idea of an immense and terrifying place. And these demons were saying to Jesus, don't send us to the abyss, we're begging you. Stop battering us. Don't batter us. Don't bruise us. Don't torment us. Don't you see the irony? Or have you missed it? The irony here is that the demons were doing that very thing to this possessed man for years. They were tormenting this soul and they, they had him in their grips. Demon, the demons begged Jesus not to do to them what they are doing to this man. And for a long time now, they have been tormenting this man. Luke's goal in this narrative uh, seems clearly to be that Jesus has power over the forces of darkness. And we could keep it at this, and it would be a great history lesson and a great theological lesson. But since I'm not a demon-possessed person, you might be saying, what does this passage have to do with me? Well, here are some questions that I think you need to consider when you think about this episode of Jesus meeting this demon-possessed man here in Luke chapter 8. My question is this, is, we are all, there's no one here who was born a Christian. You may describe yourself, well, I was born a Christian, meaning that your, Christ, your parents were Christian. And, but no, there's no one ever born a Christian. You must be born again. John 3 tells us that, makes it clear. So whatever your heritage is, you've needed to experience salvation for yourself. You're not going to get on into heaven based on the faith of your parents. You must believe yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us have been unbelievers in our lives. Some of you have been saved for a long time. You may have forgotten what it's like to be an unbeliever. You may say, that's a long time ago. But let me just remind you that when you were not saved, you were an unbeliever under the wrath of God. And how are all unbelievers like this demon-possessed man? There's analogy here, I believe. All unbelievers, before the Lord saves us, are enslaved to sin. Romans 6 makes that clear. All unbelievers before we are saved are held captive by Satan to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26 makes that clear. All unbelievers before they are saved are held within the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13 makes that clear. All of us as unbelievers are Satan's offspring or children of the devil before salvation. Genesis 3.15 speaks about Satan's offspring. John 8.44, you are your father the devil. And Ephesians 5.8, you once were darkness, but now you are children of light. Jesus is saying through the apostle Paul that don't look at the 
at the demon-possessed man as some historical figure that has nothing to do with your life. He is a man who's caught in the grip of the same darkness that you and I were once caught in. The same power that was necessary to free that man is the same power that you need to apply to today and the same person that you need to apply to today to be delivered from the darkness that controls you, Medina, and the rest of Ohio and the rest of America. And there's only one person who can deliver us from the darkness. No family or nearby friends can help the man under the power of darkness here in Acts uh, or, or Luke 8. The point, of, the point I'm trying to make is this by way of application. Humanity today, and you're part of humanity today, needs deliverance that only Jesus can bring. And let me hasten to add, not only the deliverance that Jesus can bring, but the deliverance that Jesus does bring. You see, ministering for nearly 20 years in the United Kingdom, before we went, we were invited to consider pastoring a church in South Jersey, in Princeton. I grew up in New Jersey, north central New Jersey, and there was an elder from a church there who contacted us by phone. Do you remember this, babe? And he, uh, and he said, hey, you're, you're going to go to, is it all right to call my wife, babe? Is that all right? <laughs> That's my wife, Kathy. I was speaking to her. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and and they, they're looking for a pastor, and you need to have a pastor. Where you don't have a shepherd, the, the sheep scatter. And he said, he said, hey, we want you to come down and preach with a view or preach a candidate uh, for us down on our church here in Princeton. And, and that's not far from where my family is. And that was kind of appealing to me. And, you know, I, I didn't go to an Ivy League school or some of those posh places. Uh, so I was, I, I was very flattered by, by, by the request. But uh, I said, well, we've been approached by our elders to ship us off on an experiment over to the U.K., uh, to preach over there in, in, in Northern Ireland and then later in England. And he said, oh, don't go to the United Kingdom. They're too far gone. Those were exact words. I've never forgot those words. Though they're too far gone over there. And my friends, let me tell you that God's not done working in the United Kingdom. God's not finished saving people throughout Europe. Uh, you know, you better pray that there's hope for the United Kingdom from which you received the, the gospel here uh, uh, in time past, in centuries past, because if there's no hope for Britain and for the spread of the gospel there, what hope is there for you here in America who are seeing the very foundations of Christian faith undermined politically, socially, culturally? I tell you that there's hope in Christ and there's hope in the gospel. We are not a defeated people who are part of the church because we walk in Christ's triumph and he wins. So whatever it looks on the outside, it appears that this is happening, and it appears that that's happening. It, it, it's only what, uh, it, it is only an appearance. It's not the real thing. This world needs deliverance that only Jesus can bring, and Jesus does bring. God is still saving people in Medina. God has you called here for this purpose, not to just be built up in your most holy faith for you, but to make disciples here in Medina, to preach the word. You cannot contract to us as missionaries what you're responsible to do. And I know you know that because you're well taught from the scriptures. You need to keep sharing the gospel. If you don't know how to do that, get equipped by your pastors to learn how to do that. Because people here need deliverance. They're caught in the same grip of darkness. I'm not saying that they're all demon possessed. I'm saying that the same darkness that bound the man in Luke 8 is the same darkness that binds the unregenerate unbeliever. And you have the answer. You can introduce them to the one and only person who can deliver them from the power of sin. Oh, it's, it's, it's not just that he can deliver, he does deliver. Now, salvation, 
I said it this way in my notes, you may not be held or possessed by legion, but without Christ's salvation, without his deliverance, the clang, clang of that ball and chain remind you that you are a slave to sin and that you need to be set free by the salvation Jesus freely offers you. Remember John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You'll be free indeed. Well, there's a second uh, lesson uh, in this passage of Scripture, and you might be saying, well, that was a, that was a long first point, uh, Pastor Tom. And it is. I always have a big porch. As, uh, as Steve Lawson will say, some of your porches are much bigger than the house, and that's true of me. I need to be in the demon with your pastor here so I can... <laughs> Uh, so I can work on, uh, on these areas that, uh, of weaknesses. But there's a, there is a response. There's a need for, for Jesus' deliverance, but there is a response to Jesus' deliverance, and that's the second main uh, lesson that I want us to learn. Really, there are three responses uh, to Jesus' deliverance. In verse 34, when you look down at the text, it says, when the herdsman saw. There's a response from the herdsman. And notice the response. Verse 34, they fled. That was their response. Uh, their response to this man uh, being uh, having the demons cast out and put into the swine up on the hill, the herdsmen saw it, and th so they run away, it says in the text. And secondly, they reported in the city and out in the country. They fled and they told it. Secondly, there's a response of the people of the city. Do you see that in verse 35 and verse 37 through 37? The people went out to see what happened. And if you read what it says down there, it, it tells us that the people in verse 35 were curious in verse 37, they ask Jesus to depart. The, the other Gospels record them making this request, knowing that Jesus had cast the demons out of this man that they knew about. No doubt he was famous uh, in the city. No one, hey, be careful, you go out that side of town, you're going to meet uh, this guy. And the other Gospels make it uh, clear that there was another guy there too. Uh, you know, they'd be careful in that. John Piper says, oh my goodness, the great liberator has come and they tell him, the people of the town, tell Jesus to get out. Piper goes on to say, to our utter amazement, they beg Jesus, the life giver, the devil defeater, the hope maker, the hope giver, to leave the region. And that's what people are doing today in, in the States and in Europe. They don't want anything of Jesus. They want their own way. They think that they know how to live life better without God. They've not read the book of Ecclesiastes that, life, that says, whose theme is life lived apart from God is vain. Life lived apart from Christ is vain. And many people are trying to do it. I wonder if, if that's a description of you. They asked Jesus, they were curious, they asked Jesus to depart. And thirdly, they were afraid. Verse 35, the third part of verse 35. Only Luke's account tells us the reason for the request. It says, for. That's explanatory. That tells us why they, why they asked to believe. They were seized with great fear. And there are two kinds of fear, of fear of the Lord. There's the fear of terror. That's the fear that the demons had in this uh, in this context, the fear of, uh, that the demons had or sinners have of God. And then there's the fear of reverence. This is the fear, fear of those who had been delivered, those who are uh, fearfully uh, loving Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These unsaved, unregenerate townspeople who had seen the deliverance of this demon-possessed man and saw the power that Jesus displayed, saw no doubt the impossibility, what they could do or couldn't do to help this man, but saw that this meek and mild uh, 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 man from Galilee had come and delivered this man. They were seized with fear. And then the response, there's a third response to Jesus' deliverance, and that's the man who was delivered. Well, the herdsmen, they don't really help us, right? They, they're terrified. They run off and start telling people what they see. 
and the and town folk and the city folk who come out, their response is not only indifference, but opposition. Just leave us. I thought when I was younger that they were upset that they lost all that pork, you know, because all those pigs went down into the water and it was affecting their economy. And, and, and that may be, but the text tells us that they were afraid because of they saw the man sitting there clothed and in his right mind what Jesus had done. And they were in fear, terror, uh, that a greater power had come to their region. But then there's this response of the third man, the man who was delivered. And for those of you who know and love Jesus Christ, you've never, you may have never been possessed by a demon, but you've been, in the grip of, you've been in the grip of darkness before you were saved. And notice his response. Notice his location. Verse 35, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Notice his condition. There's a, in verse 35, there's an external change. He's clothed. Remember, previously he was unclothed and for a long period of time. Internally, there's an internal change. It says that he was in his right mind. Christ changes us. He just doesn't give us a new garment and we dress better. And, you know, there's a lot of well-dressed people who aren't really saved, right? The outside looks good. The inside are dead men's bones. But this man's outside external changes, but something happened on the inside of this man. He was in his right mind. He was clothed and in his right mind. So you, we saw his location, his condition. Notice his petition, verse 38. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. Where Jesus is that's where this delivered man wants to be. You want to be with Jesus. That's the heart cry of every true believer. Let me tell you, I, I love um, thinking and preaching on eschatology about end times. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm a premillennialist, so I get to say that, right? Because you're more premillennial right here. And I, come, I minister in a context that's mostly amillennial. Our church is premillennial there in, in England. But it's mostly amillennial. And I, and I love talking about the future because Jesus wins. But, you know, it's not the streets of gold. And it's not the mansion I have up in heaven. It's, 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 not, the, it's not the thousand year reign of Christ that I'm so excited about. You know, it, my excitement is to be with the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So that I might spend eternity with him. All of those other things are incidental, ancillary. They, they're wonderful parts of his promises. But it's to be with Jesus is where a true believer wants to be. One who's truly been delivered wants to be with Jesus. Begs Jesus to be with him. And how frequently we can't even wait to run away from church. And uh, because people have their busy lives. And they're trying to tack Jesus on to an otherwise busy life. Note the contrast between the man at the beginning and the end. And note the contrast between the man and the people. They wanted, they, the townspeople didn't want anything to do with Jesus. The herdsmen fled from Jesus. But the man who was delivered didn't want to be apart from Jesus. There's great personal application you can make there. Notice finally his declaration. Jesus, the deity of Jesus is found here in verse 39. I want you to see it. Jesus says to the man, when, he, when the man begs him to come with him, Jesus sent him away. That may, that may sound harsh to you, that Jesus sent him away. But Jesus saved the man with a plan for that man in mind. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should do them. In other words, if you've been delivered, you've been saved to serve him. And yes, he said he'll never leave you or forsake you. 
But he has a plan. Why didn't he just take you to heaven right after you repented? Because he has a plan for you to make disciples in this world because this is the only place you're going to be able to do it. When you're in heaven, you're not going to be doing that. He has a plan for you to pass on the message of the gospel to other people while he has you here. And when he's done with you, what is he going to do? He's going to take you to be with himself. So your job and my job is quite simple. Tell other people about the one who loved them and gave himself so that they might be forgiven for their sins. And then go be with that one who loved you and gave himself for you so that you might have eternal life with him. The deity of Jesus Christ is found here when he says in verse 39, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. Do you think that Luke made a slip there? That, that, well, Jesus was pointing away from himself and saying, it wasn't me, it was God. Or do you think Jesus was saying in the context what God has done for him? Jesus is God. This is no veiled uh, reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you get the correlation? How much God had done for you? The man accurately understood Jesus' direction. And he went away and said how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus is God, my friends. Proclaiming, this is the word keruso, keruks, where we get the word preaching. And then the word how much, this is all the details. This narrative is about Jesus' power over the forces of darkness. And humanity is as in bondage to sin as this man was in bondage to those 6,000 demons. And, and humanity is just as powerless to deliver themselves. There is still a need over all Medina in this world for the deliverance that only Jesus Christ can bring. So what ought to be the response of men, women, and young people who experience Jesus' deliverance? Well, the townspeople and the city beg Jesus to depart, and he does. But not without leaving them one delivered man to witness in the city. If you wonder why you're still here after the Lord saved you, God, God hasn't forgotten about you. He has a purpose for you here. Uh, we say in missions, on the mission field, the light that shines the farthest, like overseas for missions work, shines the brightest at home. And if your light isn't strong here, loving Christ, being conformed to his likeness, telling people about Christ, then the light won't shine far. If you want to have a global ministry, it starts here with being the kind of witness who's been delivered by the grace of God. The Lord Jesus has not left you here since saving you. He has sent you here. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. You've been sent, not left. Just like this man who had been delivered. One delivered woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, or one delivered man in a city sent by Jesus is a gift of God's grace to that city. And that's what you're supposed to be to Medina. The gift of God's grace to this city who needs Christ. If you have truly been delivered by Jesus Christ, are you freely and openly and with joy and zeal telling your family, friends, and neighbors what Jesus has done for you as this delivered man? And this passage speaks of that deliverance that results in thanksgiving and in a deliverance that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I've come to challenge you with today from God's word. That's why I believe God brought me halfway around the world to tell you so that you might be delivered and you might tell others where to find deliverance in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God and, and this gospel account of 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who worked such an amazing miracle in this uh, possessed man's life to, to deliver him uh, from the, the power of darkness. And Lord, we're not trying to spiritualize the text, we're, but we are trying to learn from it. We see the analogy between the grip of darkness you had that man in and the power of darkness in our lives before you saved us. Lord, many of us can remember that time, that day, or that time, a period of time where you opened our eyes to our need of you. And you came and powerfully dispelled the darkness and transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, we thank you for your son and our savior. We thank you, Lord, that he continues to save and that today is still a day of grace. And that those who are yet caught in sin's grip may today be the day of their salvation. May they not turn away. May they not bid you go. May they not run away quickly after other matters. But Lord, may they experience the deliverance that you want to bring, you desire to bring, and that you do bring to those who repent of their sins. Lord, thank you for being so gracious to this man, and thank you for being so gracious to deliver us. May the gospel ever uh, be heralded from this place as it has been, and may you add fruit to your glory, Lord Jesus, so that even as you who are reigning in heaven now have sent us, have sent these brothers and sisters here to Medina to be salt and light to this place, and have sent us, the McConnells, uh, to Rugby, England, to preach the unsearchable.